indeed we are a needy people, but we find in you a merciful and gracious and abundant God who would strengthen us and give us life. Lord, so we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can spend time hearing from you, worshiping you, enjoying you this morning. Be with us, we pray. Be with the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to talk about the ordinances of the church. We feel that they are two, baptism and communion. But just, um, I guess, in a way of starting off, um, just remind ourselves that God is saving the world. All of creation will be redeemed from the curse of sin, um, which means that God is not just saving our souls, but he's saving our bodies, um, that our bodies are important. We have... Um, a physical and non-physical element to who we are. And there's physical life and there's spiritual life. And the fullness of life that God is offering is not just spiritual life where your soul is alive, but physical life where we would live for all eternity with God. So right now we're in this interesting state that though our inner person is being renewed day by day, our outer self is corrupting and wearing away. I think we all know this, recognize this, feel this, experience this, but we understand with the resurrection of Jesus Christ that our physical bodies will be redeemed, that we will be alive both spiritually and physically forever. And what this means then is that our bodies matter. What we do physically in this earth matters, and it's kind of important, I think, because um, kind of as history kind of ticks its way, there's nothing new in history, I guess. But there's these two extremes that usually happen where on the one end, like, people feel like what, what you do in your heart and in your mind, that is what is most important. Like, that the spiritual essence is to quiet your senses, to let all distractions of your body go away, sit and uh, prostrate and um, right? So try, try to, the, 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 the phys- like, this world is a distraction from the divine distraction from spiritual reality. And then there's like on the other end, there's kind of like the um, kind of the paganism, which says like everything you do physically is important. And so like, I mean, you wouldn't do anything in this world without offering a sacrifice or sprinkling blood or doing kind of weird druid things that they would do to just kind of ward off spirits because like the physical world had more like material power. But the Bible is like in the middle. It says like, no, both the spiritual and the physical are important. So it shouldn't, Surprise us then that when God asks us to worship, that our worship doesn't just involve our minds, doesn't just involve our hearts, our inner self, but often it involves like our whole being, that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And what we do in our bodies, it really does matter. Um, there are liturgies. There, there, are actions, there are actions that define us. So I wake up my daughter in the morning, and her gut reaction is to walk straight to the green chair. It's like somehow that pattern got established, and heaven forbid, you interrupt her from getting to the green chair. There is a pattern in her life that kind of defines something of who she is. She gets grumpy if you keep her from the green chair, okay? 
And it's true for all of us. We all have our rituals that as you start your day, there's patterns that you do physically that kind of set your day off on the right foot or the wrong foot. Some of us struggle to get up and read our Bibles in the morning. Some of us, it's just ingrained you do it. It's just what you do. So we have patterns in our life. It's the way that God's built us. We're here, like, at the beginning of the new year, and we have, like, this year I'm going to do something better. Maybe you just kind of cast it all off, like, no, I'm not going to fall into that trap of trying to better myself with a New Year's resolution that I know I'll just fail. But I, always, I was always encouraged by the idea that, like, if you do something 30 times, like, or 30 days straight, like, you'll be able to establish it as a pattern. And I thought, like, well, oh, that's great. See, all I have to do is 30 times. What I didn't realize is that to do something 30 times was nearly impossible. <laughs> that was the trick. <laughs> like, if you could push yourself 30 times to get up and read your Bible at 5 a.m., you'll do it. Good luck, right? <laughs> okay? So, so when God saves his people, when God creates a community of believers, he gives them physical patterns, physical, I guess you for lack of a better word, we don't use it a whole lot in our culture, but liturgies, liturgies, to help remind them of their identity. That he gives them a structure and a pattern and a rhythm for living. And it's built into the concept of remembrance. So in the Bible, remembering is not just a cognitive act like, oh yeah, I remember that. I forgot. Oh, I remember. Okay, it's, it's a little more important than that. To remember, according to the Bible, is to, is to think back on something that God has done in the past. Okay, so remember, but then pull that forward into the moment. Pull it forward into the moment so that it affects the here and now. So it affects you now. It changes something about now and sets you kind of on a trajectory for living. So you think of something God's done for your past. It helps you now, sets you on the right course. And so... When the Jews were saved out of Egypt, God gave this great and mighty deliverance. He freed them from bondage in Egypt, and he instituted a meal, the Passover, that was to be celebrated every year in remembrance. So in Exodus 12:14, the Lord God tells them, You shall keep this feast to Yahweh throughout your generations, and you shall keep it as a feast by an ordinance forever. You're not going to stop doing this. This deliverance was not like this moment that they were to forget. The fact that God saved them out of Egypt, they, they'll be tempted to forget it. But in reality, it was supposed to shape their very identity. And there were other festivals. When God was establishing, he gave, there was like four or five festivals in the middle of the year where you stop as a people. And reflect on what God has done for you, who he is to you, your reliance upon him. You would sit, you'd go out, there's like the, tent, the Feast of Booze, you go out in tents, it's kind of fun. You'd read scripture and you'd celebrate. The people were to reflect on their dependence on God. So God set up these ordinances, like these rhythms in the year. And there's rhythms to remind them of who they are. And to participate in these festivals and in these ordinances was a blessing. Like, think about we just celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they're great. Like, you're physically refreshed. You might get to sleep in, catch up on your sleep. You get to enjoy time with people, and so you're refreshed in your fellowship with people. 
And so, like, in much the same way, it's a blessing to enjoy these days off. It provides strength for the soul as you reflect on God. It gives you rest for the body. It gives you the joy of fellowship with other people of God. And to, and, but to fail, on the flip side, to fail to participate in them would incur judgment. So there's blessings for participating in them, but there's judgment and not participating in them. Because if you stop practicing the Passover, you're saying, God, it really doesn't matter who we are to you. It doesn't matter. Like, that you treat it kind of flippantly. Or it's just, it's such a small thing in your life, you just don't care. You don't stop all the work. Or you stop relying on him. Because, you know, if to celebrate the Passover, you'd have to stop work, finding income. Probably, like, income in their sense, like grain and food and all. Because they, and, but God was, you're going to trust me that I'll provide for you. So stop working. No, no, I must work, I must work, I must make my ends meet. And so you, you don't trust God. Or in, some, in even the extreme case, they rebelled against God, saying we think our God is weak, and if we participate in other festivals, we get stronger gods like us, and they'll help us. Okay, so, and so when that would happen, God would send judgment, that you are acting as if you were not my covenant people. Psalm 78 is one of the longer psalms in the psalms. And it looks back over the troubled history of Israel with God. And, and the theme is, you forgot. You forgot. You forgot. So God judged you. But God remembered. God remembered he made promises, great and mighty promises, that to Abraham. And God brings those in, as it were, to the moment and affects the way he treated his people. Now, these ordinances, as we move into the New Testament, we recognize that these, these festivals and these memory stones and these um, physical rituals, like, I guess, we can consider, like, physical, circumcision, I guess that's really physical, right? A physical memorial of who you are, identif- identifying who you are. In the, in the long run, what they're, they're, they're pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the Passover looked forward not to just salvation from physical bondage from a great world power, but it looks forward to the greater salvation from our greatest bondage from sin and death. Or the festival of Pentecost, which would represent God's harvest of food, pointed forward not just to the harvest of food, but the harvest of nations, as, as not just the Jews, but the Gentiles were being brought in from all the world into this great salvation. In fact, the, the New Testament tells us that the whole law, was pointing to Jesus. It told you of your need. It told you that there was redemption. There's a sacrifice to tell you that there was a redemption. It showed you that God was righteous, that God was holy, and that we needed that. And it was coming in and through Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.16. Paul is telling New Testament believers, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard, regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. They pointed as shadows, but when the substance came, you don't need a shadow any longer. You have Jesus Christ. The New Testament argues again and again that because Christ's ministry, his coming, his incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that in doing that, the law was fulfilled. So the old covenant, represented by statutes and rules and regulations, they were completed. 
And now, as a New Testament people, as a New Covenant people, we have, as it were, graduated into the New Covenant, and he gives us new ordinances. He gives us baptism and communion. Now, careful here, though. Although, as a New Covenant people of God, we are no longer bound to ceremonial law. Like, we don't have to participate in the ceremonial law to be right with God. Because the true sacrifice has occurred. But it doesn't mean they don't inform us. They don't instruct us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things were written to instruct us, to inform us of who God is, how not to behave towards other people. We're not to follow necessarily. We're, we're not bound to follow every jot and tittle. Careful, I'm going to really clarify this. Every jot and tittle of the law, the writ law per se. Because God gave us the Holy Spirit. The greater thing is that God gave us the Holy Spirit who produces in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. Imagine a world where no one ever sped. No, everybody treated everybody perfectly kindly and appropriately on the road. Would you need laws? Would you need speed limits? Would you need cops out there enforcing it? No, you would not. So, so in one sense, do we have to follow them? No, we're not bound to them, but we're bound to a higher calling. We're bound to love, to love. So the ordinances of the Old Testament, they inform us in the New Covenant. While fulfilling the old ordinances, Christ establishes new ones. Baptism and communion. Now next week, Bob is going to talk about baptism. This week we're going to talk about communion, the Lord's Supper. So we're going to start, turn to Luke 22. And we'll start in verse 14. So open your Bibles. We're going to look at three passages. This is the first. Luke 22, chapter 14. The um, record of the, the Lord's Supper being established is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke we call the Synoptic Gospels, and John might reference it in John 5, well, 6, excuse me. Uh, so I'm just going to choose one of them. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's do Luke. Luke 14. <clears throat> it says, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, Have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until... Uh, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this as, here it is, a remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. There's a new covenant now in my blood. So notice that the Lord's Supper was instituted during the Passover, because as we said, Christ was the fulfillment of the Passover. He was the true Passover lamb slain for our sins. And the, the wine and the bread richly symbolizes the giving of his body and his blood for us, his sacrificial death. And just as God, at the moment of the deliverance, that God gave the Old Covenant people a meal to remember their freedom, Christ gives his people a meal to remember their freedom from sin and their identity in Christ. Now, what do we call this meal? 
this is the kind of what we believe, okay, and establish this. What do we call this meal? Now, I guess in Luke, it starts, it says it's Passover. It starts as the Passover. In 1 Corinthians 11, it's referred to as the Lord's Supper. Some people look at uh, the passage in Acts 2, where they said they broke bread together and had fellowship, so they call it the breaking of bread or fellowship. Sometimes you'll hear that. Um, in early writings, so like the generation right after the apostles, we have letters, people kind of talking to each other, and they would call it the Eucharist. Eucharist comes from Thanksgiving, because it would say Christ, he gave thanks. And so that's the name that kind of, kind of moved forward in time. So even as early as the 90 ADs are calling this the Eucharist, but consider them all synonyms. They're all pointing to this meal. Now, how often was it practiced? We obviously practice communion every week. Um, I think there might, there, I think there is, not might, I think there is an argument for why. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus gives them a command. The, the reason this is an ordinance, the reason why we practice is God, Jesus commanded, do this. Do this in remembrance. Don't stop doing this. Continually practice this. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in Acts 2, when the church was first formed, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, a great multitude saved, and it's said that these people were continually devoted to certain things. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the teachings of Jesus Christ. They were fellowshipping with each other. They're committed to gathering together and sharing things in common. It says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Now, the phrase breaking of bread, it's, it's not just like breaking of bread generic. It's like the breaking of bread. So some people like to really emphasize, no, it's not just breaking of bread, it's like the breaking of bread, which must mean, of course, communion, um, the Lord's Supper. And other people would see it as an ordinary meal because you say, you know, to meet together, the first thing you do is say, blessing and break the bread. All right, so some people see it as evidence for, like, they were doing it all the time, and some don't, but I, you know, I talked to Bob. I think, Bob, you're with every week, right? They were practicing all together. Um, I wouldn't make a huge case off of that per se, but I think more importantly would be in First Corinthians. So... These are the next two passages we're going to look at. So open, like, turn over to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at 10, chapters 10 and 11. Not all of them, but kind of the key points in there. All right, so we'll start. I'm just going to read the, the scriptures pertaining to the Lord's Supper in these passages right now. So we'll start in uh, chapter 10, verse 14. It says, Therefore, my bro- beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. Why? For we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants of the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that the pagans, that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Okay, now move forward to chapter 11 and verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you, that they may be recognized. When you come together, is it not for the Lord's Supper that you eat? For an eat up, excuse me, no, said it wrong. Try that again. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, the other gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty. Guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so we would not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give you directions when I come. A large chunk of passage to read. So we're asking, so how often were they practicing communion? And he makes two statements. He says, when you come together, when you come together, it says, when you're gathering together, there are factions among you. Of course, there'd be factions. There's selfish people in your midst, right? Some of you are genuine. Some of you might be just downright hypocrites, but we're selfish people. So there are factions. And then he kind of explains this. So he says, when you come together, it's not for the better, for the worse. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, which kind of makes it sound like, when they come together, they eat the Lord's Supper. It's just part of their gathering. Now he says, not the Lord's Supper. He says, you think you are, but you're not. You're not because you're eating it inappropriately, in an inappropriate manner. We'll get into that. But it seems like the gathering together, the eating of the Lord's Supper, is part of the gathering. Now, again, okay, so this is helpful. Again, I, I mentioned that we have letters the churches early on, early as 90 AD. And in these, in these letters, they, they talk about when they meet, they eat the Lord's Supper. They call it the Eucharist. And there is a, a very interesting letter from Justin Martyr. Last name does not bode well for him. Justin Martyr. Yes, he was a martyr. And the Christians were being accused of many things to the Roman Empire. One of them was cannibalism. It's like, look, they're cannibals. So Justin Martyr says, can I explain this to you? So he writes a letter to the Roman emperor, um, Pius, 
Antonius Pius. Um, so it was about 150 A.D. And he, and he explains to them that when we gather together, this is what we're doing. And it, we, we meet together, we have a meal together, we celebrate Eucharist together, we hear the word together. And the reason why we th- say it's the body and blood is because Jesus said it was my body and blood. It's not practicing cannibalism. So again, just kind of like this, this kind of cumulative seems to be this argument that every time they're getting together, the early church was practicing this meal every time. Okay. So what is, more importantly, what is the significance of the Lord's Supper? It's rich. It's complex. And I, I would argue in some sense is it, it is as inexhaustible as the work of Jesus Christ itself. You cannot plumb the depths of like everything that the Lord's Supper represents. In a sense, it speaks to his incarnation, that Christ became flesh and blood. It talks about his sacrifice, that he died for us by giving of his body and shedding of his blood. It speaks of a sense of the nourishment that comes from him. But what, what would be some main points of the significance? First and foremost, it is an act of remembrance. Because that's what Jesus said it was for, to remember Christ's sacrifice. It is a remembrance about Christ's sacrificial death and our People are participation in the benefits. The Lord's Supper is like a rehearsal of the gospel. Like you recognize that, oh God, I am a sinner. Oh God, I need your sacrifice. Oh God, I need your strength and your nourishment. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our hope. Because we're proclaiming his death until he comes. So it's kind of pointing us forward again. It tells us of God's great love for us. That Jesus came to this world to save Sinners, it tells us of God's righteousness and his judicial wrath because Christ's body was broken. He was crushed on the cross for our iniquities, from Isaiah 53. Christ's blood was poured out in death. So do this in remembrance of me. And in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that we're doing this. And in doing this, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. So it's to remind us every week, or as often as we practice it, is to remind us again and again and again, this is who we are. We are a people bought by Jesus Christ. And it tells us of our participation in its benefits. So back in 1 Corinthians 16, this cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ, in joining Together, eating this meal, we are showing ourselves as those who belong to the table of the king. And we are nourished by the king. There are blessings to be had, and they are ours. The second thing that this meal tells us, and I think we miss this a lot, because it's just our culture, that, that highest spirituality is your individual individual worship, but the meal unifies us together as one people, as one people. So, yes, there's an individual element that you, as it were, were understanding that Christ died for you and that you are participating in the blessings of it, but it also tells you that we are one people. We have fellowship with God in communion. We have fellowship with each other in communion. Because 1 Corinthians 10.17 says, Because there is one bread, 
we who are many are one body, because we all partake of the one bread. So as we see ourselves gathering, as it were, around a meal, the way a family would gather around a meal, sharing together the bread and passing it as if we are one family, one body. I guess in a a rough way of saying it, kind of like you are what you eat. If you partake of the body of Christ, you are the body of Christ. Christ is the spiritual head that nourishes his body, and we are a part of that. Only his body is nourished by him in this way. The table is the great equalizer. Well, no, actually, step back. Salvation is the great equalizer. Be you king or pauper, male or female, of this nationality or that nationality, a great American or someone else, right? Okay? We all equally need the salvation, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when you come to the table, now this was recognized. When Christianity was moving into the world, communion was a problem for some of the cultures because the king sat at the same table as a pauper and were treated as equal status. And that bothered because it eliminated classes because you're all one people, you see? Even in Japan, it was really interesting. There was, you know, you heard of the tea houses where it's like this, the way of peace, the way of tea? The man who started it, his wife got saved by a missionary. His wife partaking communion. She, and he saw like, oh, noblemen and peasants partake. I'm going to do that too. I'm going to make tea houses. And I'm going to make the door so low that you can't enter with your sword because your status symbol had to be left at the door. So you all came together. He died. From his feudal lord. Dead. Don't like it. <laughs> but they see it. They see that in communion that we're saying that together we are one people. There is no one higher than another. Now, that was, by the way, the issue of the Corinthian church because there was definitely some, like, status going on. Rich people don't have to work or get off work early. Poor people having to work to the very end of the day. And the rich people were not waiting for the poor people to come to the table. Like, they show up, like, food's there, I'll eat. They eat their fill, drink so much they got drunk. Whereas, and then, like, the poor people would come in and would be humiliated because there'd be no food and no drink left for them. They're, they're acting in complete division, like somehow that we're better. He says, you did not wait for your brother or sister. You were not acting as one people. You were considering yourself better than your brother and not looking out for their needs. They were causing schisms and disunity. So that's why Paul said, you, you say you're taking the Lord's Supper. You are not. Because the Lord's Supper is something that unifies, not divides. So I think that we should all we should consider this when we take communion together, like not just this, although that is extremely important that we fellowship with God. Look to your right, look to your left. We are a people together, and communion is telling us that. And do not think highly of yourself. You know that person that drives you nuts? The person you don't like, the person that gives you a hard time, the person that is always the problem. You're united to that person. You're to love that person, care for that person. Third, when we are, when you take of the Lord's Supper, we are spiritually nourished. We are nourished in this meal. 
1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider this. The people of Israel are not those who eat of the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What he's referring to is that the priests, the priests would be working in the temple day in, day out, working hard, sweating, I mean, pulling bulls up onto the altar. It's got to be hard work. Okay? Standing in front of this hot flame, hard work. But God nourished them through the sacrifice. They were allowed to eat of portions of the sacrifice. So they were participating, as it were. They were being fed and nourished by the sacrifice. And so he's saying, like, just like they were being nourished by being able to eat of the sacrifice while they were sacrificing the animals, so too you. You are being nourished when you partake of the meal. Don't miss the fact that the, the thing that Christ is telling us to remember him with is food. And drink. The image is real. Because you don't eat food, you die. You eat food, you live. Christ is food to us. You could go without food for months with an aching belly. And if God would have you live, you would live. In John chapter 6, Christ says this about himself. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of my Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live, live because of me. This is the bread that has come down from heaven. It is not like the bread the fathers ate, referring to manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, certainly Jesus is not speaking in like the literal crunching on flesh, drinking of blood in that sense. He's he's talking about... The benefits, the spirit that when we eat of this, there are spirit, we are participating in the body and the blood of Christ, and there are benefits of redemption that He has earned for us, that we participate in, and we are nourished. Our souls are nourished. When we partake of the bread, it symbolizes. It is both the symbolized and experience of being nourished. That we're eating, it's like a sign saying, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. So you're eating and you're being nourished. It is grace. Because think about it. Like, there is a reason that God made it a physical act, in some sense. Like, because what, if it's like, oh, all I want you to do is cognitively remember. Just cognitively. Could you not read the text? And say, okay, I get it. I remember this. But it's like actually, as it were, like reaching out and saying, yes, this food is for me and I am eating of it. Christ is for me. He is my life. He is sustaining me. He is nourishing me. And you're doing that in eating. It symbolizes, in a sense, experiencing it in that moment. It points us to the reality of Jesus Christ. It is God's power working in us in that moment. We talk about 
there's like means of grace. Like how does grace come to us? There's lots of means of grace. Like you read the word, God's grace works in you. You fellowship with believers, God's grace works in you. You get baptized, God's grace works in you. You partake in the Lord's Supper. You sit at his table. You are nourished. Remember him. It's God's grace to you. The word, baptism, the supper, they do not convey different realities, but are a threefold manner in which God delivers Christ and his benefits to us by his spirit. It's just a full, dynamic way that he is working with us, that he is redeeming our bodies till we physically participate in this meal. Who can take communion? Who can take it? The gospel is offered to all. Jesus is the bread of life. He offers himself. Come. Come and eat. Yet, the fellowship of the table is intended for those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who have made the profession of faith, who have reached out with faith and said, you are mine who have been baptized and identified themselves with him. The table is for those with whom God has made peace. So when you partake of the gospel, when you're saved and you have peace with God, you sit at his table. You belong there. It's intended to be taken corporately as one people. So it's intended to be as a gathered people. We have to take it, well, I say take it in a worthy manner, that's not quite right. Take it in a worthy manner is not quite what it says. But beware, there are blessings and there are judgments. Because it said, you are being judged because you have eaten of it in an unworthy manner. You cannot participate in the Lord's Supper and not be unaffected. It will either bless you or judge you. And there's no middle ground. Now, the judgment that was coming on the Corinthian church, they were weak, ill, some were dead. Physical judgment. People actually died in this church because of the way that they're behaving in communion. New covenant people, dead. It happens. God's ordinances are not to be trifled with. They're important. Think about Moses. When he was... I mean, he just got his marching orders, sat, he, he spoke to God in a burning bush. He's marching to Pharaoh, his sons aren't circumcised, the angel came for him. Okay. Even Moses, trifling with the sign of circumcision. Judgment was coming his way until he circumcised his sons. They're not to be trifled with. Now, this judgment was not two ways judgment comes at you. There's like a declaration of you are guilty, be gone from me, and there's discipline. Discipline is like the reason why you put your children in timeout or cause them some type of grief or pain. So they know, do not do this anymore. Right? And Paul says that this judgment that they were experiencing was disciplinary. In order to correct their course of action, he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Like, you, you could look into this yourself. You could see what's going on, O Corinthians. Think about it. You could judge yourself truly. And then you would not have to deal with this. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned. Condemned with the world. So what? So this is a that's a great concern. What is the eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? That used to terrify me so much. Terrified. I wasn't saved when it terrified me, so that was a good thing. It didn't terrify me when I became a Christian. It was joyous. Remember, what were the Corinthians doing? Behaving in self-interest. Behaving with disunity. They had been so out of line that Paul says, even though you say it's the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper. And it's producing the opposite effect. She says, let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For, verse 29, for, explain it, why? For, anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Without discerning the body. So in other words, examine yourself. To test to see if the motivation of the heart for coming to the table. Why are you coming? To have a good time? Have a good meal? Get drunk on wine? You're missing it. It is to gather as one body to receive grace. So our concern is that of unity. In a, in a similar thought, Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, stop worshiping. Go. Be reconciled to your brother first. So as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Do not come saying all is well when you're causing disunity. But what it is not saying, It's not saying in order to partake in the Lord's Supper, you must be worse. As if the Supper is a means of grace, a reward for the strong. Like, oh, God, I made it through this week without sin. Let me come to your table. Wrong. The Supper is a means of grace for the weak. For those who are weak, not a reward for the strong. So are you worthy? Of course not. Not of your own merit. No. You come to the table because there was a sacrifice at you that made you worthy. That you belong to the body of Christ and therefore you have his righteousness. He makes you worthy. He makes you. And it's when you attack that, as it were, the body of Christ, pushing people off, not seeing it for what it is, that you're partaking in an unworthy I mean, sometimes you feel like, like, do I partake this week? Oh, let me test and discern my heart. If you're coming to the table and saying, God, give me grace. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for my brothers and my sisters. Refresh my soul. We would pass out the elements, and the worship team would come forward, and we worship our God.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you that in you we have life everlasting. Not just in quantity, Lord, but also in quality. For this is eternal life that you would know the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lord, we thank you that you have given us yourself. Lord, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, we pray that you would delight our souls with you. Lord, this week, may not, as it were, feel this. The Lord is good. We may not taste this. We may not taste that the Lord is good. Lord, you have offered yourself to come to you. You would nourish us, delight us, give us joy, give us your peace, or that you produce your fruit in us. So I pray that this would be true for all of us here. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. Lord, together we are your body. You brought us together. Lord, thank you that we all partake of this together. We have the same bread, it's a common experience. And that you've knitted us together as a local congregation to serve you with all of our gifts and our talents. Lord, let us love each other. We pray that you would be with us this week. Please stand.